0: Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Over the last several months, we have spent much time talking about what 2021 might look like. We've discussed the Biden tax plan in great detail. We discussed the Trump tax plan in a lengthy episode. But somehow we haven't really discussed the plan that might be the most likely plan for 2021. Which one is that, you ask? Well, it's the bipartisan plan. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait, there's a bipartisan tax plan? Since when? Well, before we answer that question, let's just backtrack for a second. What we're talking about here is the scenario where Republicans win one or both of those Georgia runoff races. In that scenario, we would have a divided Congress. And the ambitious Biden tax plan would seem likely to remain in the hypothetical, at least for now. So where does that leave the tax agenda then? Nowhere. Or would Republicans and Democrats come together to find common ground on taxes? That is exactly the topic for this week. And to get at this many faceted question, I'm joined by our old friends, Jen Acuna and Tom Stout. So, Jen, let me start with you. I just suggested that a GOP-controlled Senate would be unlikely to support the Biden tax plan. Is that right? Or do you think there would be something that the GOP might agree to that is in the Biden plan?
1: That is exactly right. The first premise that they would be highly unlikely to support most of the items that are in the Biden tax plan. You know, there could be some areas of potential common ground, but they're really few and far between, at least with respect to the tax plan that was circulated by the Biden campaign.
0: So let me ask you this question, because I've heard a couple people say this, and I know what I think about it, but let me just get your take on it, and it goes something like this.
1: In the past...
0: Republicans have agreed or proposed corporate rates that are higher than 21%. For example, during your time at the Ways and Means Committee, Jen, there was a Republican proposal on tax reform where the corporate rate was 25%. So there are some out there that say, well, Republicans have already proposed 25%. They must be okay with that. So they might not go to 28 but surely they are okay with 25% on the corporate rate. What's the flaw in that logic?
1: Well, the primary flaw in that logic is that the 25% was circulated as an alternative to the 35%, right? So 25 represented a 10-point rate cut. So yes, 25%, and first of all, it was a proposal. The reason it was 25% was because that was the target for a revenue-neutral tax reform package and corporate tax decrease. The fault in that logic is that You know, these were all decreases in the corporate rate. The 25% rate has not been floated since the rate dipped below 21% as an alternative to the 21% in an increasing fashion.
0: Really important point. Going down is always easier than going up. Is that what you're saying?
1: For Republicans, yes.
0: Got it. Okay, with that rosy scenario that Jen has painted for us. okay, Tom, let me ask you the question then. Does that mean Republicans and Democrats aren't going to agree to anything on taxes? Or are there some items that they could actually agree to, say, in 2021 or 2022?
2: Well, there are a few possibilities. Jen's right. You know, this this starts out with the TCJA cuts for which not a single Democrat in the House or Senate voted. So you're talking about small stuff now rather than big stuff. But, you know, it starts with there are some transitions and expirations in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that they're going to have to come back to. Things like R&D amortization, the expensing begins to phase out. The 163J cap on the interest deduction gets more draconian, you know, all beginning in 2022. Those are things that they're going to be faced with. How they address them is another question, but things they're going to look at. And, and certainly for some of them, like the especially the R&D amortization, there's not a lot of support for that on either side, so they may come back to it. There are going to be questions about how to pay for it. It may end up becoming another extender. Horrible thought, but those are things they're going to have to address. There's a retirement security bill out there that's bipartisan, the SECURE Act. It's mostly aimed at you know trying to get more people at the lower end of the income spectrum involved in retirement programs. By providing credits for small businesses, set them up and having automatic enrollment, things like that. Both sides might be able to come together in some sort of deal on other things, on some income tax cuts at the lower end of the income spectrum. For instance, expansion of the EITC or refundable child credits yes you know, so there are some places where at least there is room for some discussion. And the question is always going to be how to offset the cost if they have to offset the cost and there may be some opportunities you know if economic stimulus is something that we're looking at because we're still in a recession, which we will all may be there may be things that can be done without offsets. so there are some things that could come to.
0: and one other thing what about the potential for who knows what's going to happen in the next week on another round of COVID relief but Do you think it's possible we could get another significant COVID bill next year that could have tax items in it, including tax items for the business community?
2: Well, it's certainly a possibility if they don't get one done this year. The bill that this little bipartisan group is talking about now at least comes back to the question of forgiven PPP loans and whether the associated expenses can be deducted. So things like that and and potentially the employee retention tax credit could make its way back into a bigger bill than the one they're talking about currently.
0: All right. Well, that's kind of promising. There's a pretty long list you just gave us there, Tom. So I guess it means, for one thing, we know Congress loves an extender. When something's expiring, You know, they just can't ever seem to let it go, as we've talked about before. And the other good news is I guess we won't have to shut down this podcast next year because there'll be things to talk about. So that's good. But so then, Jen, you heard Tom's list there. It's a pretty long list. Those things cost money. They will all cost money. Do you think in this scenario, divided control, Republicans controlling the Senate, Democrats controlling the House, that Congress would pay for doing any of those things, raise taxes to help pay for some of the things that Tom just talked about?
1: There are some provisions that would potentially require pay for. As we've said in podcasts in the past, typically emergency legislation is not paid for, right? Because this is a quick response to an emergency So when we talk about potential tax provisions or business tax provisions, individual provisions in an emergency piece of legislation, like a COVID-19 relief bill, there you're not really thinking about how taxes can be increased in order to pay for them, even in a later point in time, right? It's uh, usually new tax increases pay for new spending. When we talk about extenders, extenders also, similarly – have not been typically paid for, at least not in recent history. So, you know, once something is categorized as an extender or part of an extender's package, it becomes part of the current tax policy baseline, the revenue baseline, and in order to extend that, it hasn't been the custom in recent years to provide revenue increases in order to pay for an extension of the current policy baseline. However, some of the other items... Like perhaps a pensions bill that addresses multi-employer pension plans, that is an area where you could see it, A, costing a significant amount of revenue, and B, requiring some sort of revenue offset or tax increase in order to fund it.
0: And that always makes it so much harder, right, Jen? In assembling the TCJA, that doing the tax cut side is relatively easy. It's finding the way to pay for it. It is really hard. There's a lot of friction in the system of finding something that everybody can agree to, right?
1: Oh, The tax cut side is the feel-good piece. That's the dessert option. And the pay-fors are the gnarly vegetables no one wants to eat. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Mm, making me hungry. Okay, well, and then your other point about extenders is such a good one, and it always reminds me of something that one of my bosses when I worked on Capitol Hill would always say about extenders, and he felt very strongly we should never pay for extenders, and I think his logic on this is pretty good, which is he would say this. Why would we raise taxes to prevent a tax increase? In other words, if we let this thing expire, we're gonna have a tax increase, so why should we raise taxes to prevent taxes from increasing? Now, I know not everybody sees it that way, But I always found that to be a pretty compelling point in terms of when you get to this question of whether or not you should pay for them. Okay. Well, now, Tom, back to you again, because you talked about a lot of stuff. Some of the things we talked about on the business side, so just if I can recap some of the big ones. We talked about the R&E amortization, preventing the amortization rule from kicking in. We talked about 163J. You mentioned specifically, I think, the conversion from... EBITDA to EBIT. There's also that 50% of adjusted taxable income standard that's in CARES that expires at the end of this year that could potentially be in play. There's bonus depreciation, which has had bipartisan support over the years. All those things are on the business side of the ledger, and Republicans might agree to all those. But what are Democrats going to have to get? Are they going to just go along with business tax cuts alone? Or what's going to have to be in the package to sort of get it through the democratically controlled house?
2: Well, they're not going to do it happily, that's for sure. This suggested, you know, at least for an extension of some of these things, maybe there's a trade-off with lower income tax cuts. But beyond R&D amortization, I think there's pretty strong bipartisan support for retaining expensing. I think it's pretty hard to address the 163J cap or extending expensing on any longer-term basis without the flip side of that being some increase in the corporate rate. And, you know, as Jen suggested at the outset, that may be a non-starter for Republicans. So in a divided Congress, those probably unlikely.
0: On the individual side, if we take the corporate rate increase off the table, you talked about some stuff on the individual side of the ledger that Democrats might support. Is there anything else on back on the business side that might be helpful? So I'm just thinking out loud things that have historically been rather popular on the Democratic side of the aisle, the low-income housing tax credit, modifications and expansion of tech, the wind and solar credits. There's long been an effort to expand and extend those things. Are there things on the business side, or do you really think it'll end up on the
2: individual side to get the votes in the House? This could work into it too, into, into some sort of a broader deal. There's a lot more interest on the Democratic side doing the low-income tax cuts, but there is interest in green credit, and as you suggest, so you know that that may be part of a deal, at least for a shorter-term extension. I think you know trying to make any of these things permanent without a, an adjustment to in the corporate probably isn't getting through a Democratic House.
0: Well, should we get to this scenario where Republicans control the Senate? I guess we will find that out soon enough. All right, Tom, let me stick with you for a minute, because one wild card in my mind in all of this that could really have a profound impact next year uh, that we haven't talked about is what's going on at the OECD. You know, the negotiations around BEPS 2.0 and the negotiations on Pillar 1, Pillar 2. So depending on what happens there, let's just imagine for a moment that the OECD has a deal and that the U.S is in agreement with that deal, that a Biden treasury agrees to some sort of deal. Could that push Republicans and Democrats into something bigger, like almost like a tax reform kind of package, to adopt something along the lines that might come out of the OECD working?
2: With or without a deal, I think we're going to see some activity on the foreign side, changing on Pillar 1 to destination-based taxes, with Pillar 2 taxing a lot of U.S. multinationals on their low tax income, in both of those cases, you know, I could see a U.S. response where we might want to do the same thing on destination-based taxes, whether it's just retaliatory or to offset the revenue we're going to lose. Same is true with CFC-type low-taxed income. Why would we let U.S. multinationals be taxed by foreign countries when we might do the same ourselves? So either way, it may push us into the reacting and on the U.S. side. So
0: sources in the eye of the beholder, I guess we were saying. And if you think about what that means, and and we've talked about this on a podcast eons ago, that all that stuff is going to require congressional involvement, right? We shouldn't lose sight of that as this all plays out at the OECD next year, that ultimately if the U.S. signs on to something, it's going to require Congress to get involved either through legislation or treaty or probably both. And so it's going to open up This can of worms in the U.S. And remember, it's not going to be as simple as just implementing this thing that comes out of the OECD. Because in my view, once Congress starts, these things get bigger and bigger, right? And we're going to be in some kind of reform-like plan rather than doing something much more modest than you were talking about at the outset, Tom, right? Don't you agree that if we actually do this, now we've really, in many ways, reopened the TCJA and we may feel compelled to do something really broader, right? Correct. And the, the funny thing about it is you might say, well, Republicans going to go along with that. Well, remember, you might have the business community on Capitol Hill saying, we need to do this. Right? Because we may not love it, but it's certainly better than the alternative, in which case you might very well see bipartisan support for something like that.
1: The one wrinkle I would say, John, is that even if the business community is in support of such a plan, if it does raise the deficit, if it costs revenue, that would have to be raised elsewhere. So we're not sure if that revenue offset would necessarily support the plan.
0: Fair enough. I mean, it's going to be incredibly complicated. It's already complicated. Right? What's going on at the OECD, and then you try and push the, all that, the deal making through the U.S. policymaking system, including revenue estimates and all that, is going to be incredibly complicated. All right, Jen, let's go back to this scenario where, at the OECD, maybe we have some kind of deal is struck. But let's just play this scenario out on pillar two. What if, as part of that deal, the deal is that while guilty, broadly will satisfy the requirements of Pillar 2, that we would have to change it in some kind of way. Maybe making it look more like the Biden proposal, go to country by country or something else structurally. And then one of the other real sticking points here has been, what about the beat? And would the U.S. pull down the beat in exchange for getting some kind of deal to be able to keep guilty. So let me just come back to that, because nobody knows this better than you do, having lived through the original negotiated enactment of both guilty and the beat. Just talk to us about, do you think the Republicans would agree to really structural changes in the guilty and maybe even scaling back or even eliminating the beat if it absolutely came to that in the course of the OECD context?
1: First of all, it would really depend on if there is bipartisan consensus with respect to a deal. Right now, at the very least, those guilty provisions that you just mentioned, like taking the guilty to a country-by-country analysis, that is a concept that has been resoundingly rejected, at least by Senate and House Republicans during the TCJA. That was on the table. It was considered by Congress, and it was rejected. So that would be a tougher sell, at the very least, that it would also be a tougher sell among companies and stakeholders. But setting that aside, when we talk about the beat... That's going to be another issue, right? Because if you eliminate this inbound proposal, there's going to be political pressure domestically to replace it with something else, right? So, possible, but it's not the beat versus no inbound. It's really the beat versus an alternative inbound provision to replace the beat.
0: So. It's complicated. And I guess what we're saying is that this whole OECD scenario, we're talking about kind of small ball, I think, on the front. Not that those things are unimportant things that we talked about at the outset as having bipartisan support. But if this comes through, if we really get into negotiation around implementation of some kind of agreement at the OECD, it could get really interesting and really complicated in terms of trying to find legislation that can pass both the democratically controlled House, the Republican controlled Senate. So it is going to be interesting as it always is. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this discussion of what bipartisan tax legislation might look like. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.